Hi there, and welcome to a new episode of Impact Talks. Today we have Ruth Bakker with us. He's the Global VP Marketing and Innovation at Smirnoff, a former general manager of Mexico at Red Bull, and worked at the Heineken company. What I'm most excited about is that he's Dutch, we're Dutch, we're very excited to have you on. Ruth, please introduce yourself. Where might the people know you from? Um, Tim, well, first of all, welcome and, uh, and good morning from, from New York. Uh, as you said, I am uh, Dutch, but I have not been living in the Netherlands for almost 18 years. Um, in those 18 years, I basically have been moving around between Mexico City and New York. And I've been very privileged in this period to work for companies, as you mentioned, like Heineken, Red Bull and, uh, and Diageo. Um, things that people might know me from, of course, is, uh, well, I'm, I'm a little bit further away, but uh, I developed the recent campaigns and all the activation strategy for, for Smirnov, which has also run in, uh, in the Netherlands, which is very much focused on creating new um, yeah, relevance for the vodka category and educate people on how and when to drink vodka because the category is strongly uh, in decline. Uh, so yeah, that's a little bit on my uh, my background and, and where I'm located at this moment. I think one of the most compelling questions that I had kind of thinking about this podcast this week was uh, how did you end up going away from the Netherlands? What were the opportunities presented to you to go international? Could you go a little bit back in your history and tell us about that? Yeah, the, the, a very good question. And um, si since the Netherlands is so small, uh, when, when I was really starting my career and, and was looking around, finding a company that allowed me to go abroad was very important. And then um, combine that with my passion for the on-premise. So when I was uh, studying, I was working full time um, in bars and restaurants, either as manager or as bartender or as chef. Uh, those things combined and landed me in Heineken. And within Heineken, I ended up in an international traineeship, which basically prepares you uh, to go abroad. Uh, still, in the end, the opportunity to go abroad became came very suddenly. So I was just landing in uh, a new job in uh, for Heineken in the Netherlands as uh, the responsible for marketing for Amstel. And I was like a year in the job when they offered me the opportunity to go to uh, to Mexico. And I jumped on the opportunity um, while not speaking Spanish. And I had never been in Mexico. I just jumped on the plane, two suitcases and went there. And I didn't come back to the Netherlands for a year until I was well settled there. And so, yeah, that was basically how it started. But I'm very grateful for Heineken to have given me that opportunity. How old were you when that opportunity happened? Uh, 31 at the, at the time. Did you have a girlfriend, wife at the time, family? I had a girlfriend, uh, a long-term girlfriend uh, at the time. Uh, we were, when we moved to Mexico, we were together for seven years and we were living together. Uh, we just bought a house in the Netherlands together. Great. So, so. But was it easy to convince somebody to move country with you? What, what was that conversation like? No, well, it, for me, it was easy because um, yeah, I had been very open since the beginning of, of our relationship that my goal was to go abroad. And um, so, so she knew 
um, and she, she was very open to it. And of course, when Mexico comes along, it's a very beautiful country to, to live in. At least it paints some very uh, idyllic pictures. Um, so no, that conversation was not hard at all. Uh, my girlfriend at the time, she was a teacher. Uh, so we did agree that she would finish the school year in the Netherlands and then join me, uh, yeah, like four or five months later. Interesting. So I want to get into more of the specifics. Obviously, your career, you've done quite some interesting things as well. They're quite relevant to, to our audience. Um, so I want to get into, you know, somebody like you becomes, goes into marketing what are the skills that you've built up throughout your career that allowed you to become global marketing leader? Uh, yeah, I think the, the, the first thing is something that I, I think I approach my career different than a lot of, lot of people and I had a different way also uh, into, into Heineken. The, the first thing I think is I created my own career path. So also within Heineken, I did not have a standard path and I didn't follow the, some of the yeah, the, the traditional route to, to grow up. I, I, I like to create my own opportunities uh, within there. So I think that is for me. So for me, a job description starts as a sort of a framework within you have the freedom to create and come up with ideas and solutions that are important for the company and may, maybe were not always um, on the radar when they created your, uh, your job description. So you see that when I took on jobs, they evolved in very different routes than, than originally uh, planned. Um, secondly, I think if in marketing, I think you have to have a very big curiosity. Uh, so, so really trying to understand consumers, what drives them and, and what is driving the in, uh, energy is, uh, is for me very important. And that also means, and especially in, our, in the business where I'm in, which has been mostly beverages, means also that you need to connect with your consumers in real life. So you cannot really do your marketing by just sitting in your ivory tower and your desk and, and reading reports. You have to go out and, and meet, meet, meet consumers, but also meet competitors, meet other trends and really in, in, yeah, involve, immerse yourself in, in, in the trends. Um, I think that is a very, a very important thing. Um, I think another important thing for me is just um, <clears throat> The, the marketeers for me are sort of like detectives. So you need to have a sort of a natural interest in solving problems and, and finding a way because in the end, marketing is still um, yeah, a um, mixture between science and, uh, and art. And, and I think that is uh, what is very interesting. You have that combination of being analytical, but also being uh, really willing to be an artist. And then lastly, I think it's also very, for me, very important, at least to keep up with what's happening in your, uh, uh, yeah, in marketing and keep up to date, because especially in recent years, things have evolved a lot from where we were in the past. Uh, the new look on marketing that was uh, basically introduced by, by Brian Sharp. So there's a lot of involvement and then especially the development that's going on at the moment with the whole digital change, um, that, that is really placing a, a big challenge for marketeers, especially in lar larger operations, as they tend to be a little bit further away from those uh, developments.
We had a couple of episodes back. We had uh, the global president of uh, advertising at Reddit on. He was also Dutch, which is hilarious. Um, but it sounds very much like you guys should talk. But so the thing that I'm hearing is, you know, a lot of experience and you're trying to explain broad concepts. I have a couple of questions that pop up, which is uh, first, you say, you know, keep up with the trends. What newsletters are you following? You know, new people maybe who are getting into marketing uh, and maybe in the beverage industry. Are there specific newsletters for people that you're following? Uh, yeah, they're a very good question. Yes, I have a couple of subscriptions. So first and foremost, I'm a member of the American Marketing Association, which gives me a, a lot of information. And then I tend to uh, very much focus on uh, industry uh, information. So like, uh, what's it, IWSR, Just Drinks, uh, what's it, uh, Beverage Force. So that, those keep me very well informed of what's happening in, in the category. Um, and uh, a very simple one is uh, Google Alerts, just setting up alerts on Google uh, to make sure that new items that you want to want to see pop up in uh, in your newsfeed. So, so what kind of alerts do you have? Uh, I focus a lot. Again, I focus a lot on on drinks and uh, the drinks innovation where I'm interested in. So I do look for, for, for instance, new products in vodka is, is something that I that I uh, follow closely. Um, I do follow uh, what I think is going to be a more and bigger and bigger trend is uh, no and low alcohol. So I'm trying to follow those development. I follow more general trends. So I have a sort of a trend analysis. So what's happening? Which trends do you uh, do you see? Um, and I have another one uh, that slips in mind, but I will uh, come back to that one. But I have a couple of, of those set up. I had a question involving the last thing that you just said regarding you were telling me, you know, from experience, everything you've learned over your career. I learned from stories. Um, do you have stories and maybe case studies that you have from the beginning of your career? They really gave you aha moments that maybe put you on a path to eventually do marketing on a global scale. Um. I have had uh, different aha moments, and uh, I must say some of the aha moments I have has not directly uh, linked to your question of does that drive to global scale. I think in the end, at least I, I, I'm looking at that one. So whether do you do marketing on a global scale or on a local scale? Um, I think in everybody's career, you should do at least one stint on a global scale because it is in a global company, it is just a difference. So it's more strategic, it's more long-term, but you're also further away from, uh, from, the, uh, from, from the action. Um, but the tools and the thinking is not that different. It is just that you, uh, you have a more longer-term view where the, where the market really needs to meet their targets this, uh, this year, you are looking at innovations two three years three years out so that but the, but the tools are pretty much and and the things that you need to do are pretty much the same so i don't think there is that big a difference between doing local marketing and 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 global marketing it's more in the execution so in most companies when you are in a global role you don't have direct control of what markets execute so as a global marketeer you need to influence the local markets 
to implement the plans that uh, that you come up with and get them on board. I think that's the, the biggest difference. And uh, yeah, th th that is something that you learn along the way. But yeah, stakeholder management, networking and, and the politics is, is a big part from a global marketing role. How does that look like? Because it sounds so vague. You're making up a plan and then I'm assuming a team in the country is taking over that plan. And how can you give an example? Yeah, so, so it's, it's, it's not that that vague. So uh, in most companies, and it's the same uh, if I look at all the three companies, Heineken, Red Bull and, and Diageo. So as the global uh, brand team, there's a couple of things that really fall in your responsibilities. So setting out the brand strategy, setting out uh, some of the positioning of the brand, setting out the look and feel, setting out the packaging and setting out the innovation strategy that is all done in most cases on a global level. And then on a yearly basis, basically, uh, and that's a big part for your role, is that you work with local markets, you identify what needs to happen. And so based on that, you define, okay, what are the tools that they will implement? And in uh, especially in Heineken and in Diageo where I worked, we had a very clear, what we called brand stage model. So we had a definition, how we separated markets based on their development of the brand. So based on the development of the brand, there were different elements of the marketing mix that you focused on. So if a brand is basically unknown and not launched in a market, so, so of course there's a lot of focus on getting distribution, focusing on awareness. If a brand like, for instance, Smirnoff is in the US where it's the biggest vodka brand uh, in the country, yeah, then it's much more about consumer engagement and, and keeping the brand relevant so it's it, there is a big difference there um, but as a global brand team you have the responsibility for creating the strategy but then a second responsibility you have is work with the market that you're responsible for of creating the plans now in the end it is of course up to the markets what they will execute and it's up to the markets how much money they want to invest in your brand and that is basically just a uh, common sense financial decision where they will decide based on where they see, well, each market has their own financial targets. So in the end, they will put their money, which helps them to create their local targets. So you have to do convincing by, especially in larger companies with a portfolio like Diageo, you need to convince markets that Smirnoff can contribute to their overall uh, business. So is there, you know, Sometimes where you get this role, you go into global marketing, you set up the plan and then a country says no. And then you just your whole plan that you've worked on is just not being executed. That, that can definitely happen. And there's uh, uh, th there's two ways that that can happen. One is the, the market can basically say, hey, in my portfolio and then uh, referring to Smirnov again, Smirnov is not a priority for me. So I'm, I'm not going to invest in the brand. I'm basically going to use it as a, a service brand or to milk the brand. They can decide that. Um, or some markets, uh, for instance, like they, they are so large and so important to the brand that they have enough resources to create uh, some uh, marketing assets by themselves. And then they can basically say, hey, I'm not being served 
correctly by the global brand team what I need. So I'm deciding to uh, develop my own material. That, that is the whole political field where you're in. And, and yeah, that, that is the difficulty as a global brand team because in this day and age where your brand is globally visual, visual you want to make sure that your brand shows up the same around the world. And yeah, if, if markets are going their own way, that becomes more and more difficult. What does a daily activity look like for you? It sounds to me, maybe I'm getting this wrong, of course, but it sounds to me like you're setting up a plan, which I don't know, can take like a month or something. And then you, you give that plan to the countries. What do you do for like the rest of the time? What, what does your day look like? Or is it every day a different plan? No, no, the, the, the days are pretty feel filled because, um, yeah, yeah, of course you have your strategy and, and that that's done, uh, at a certain moment, but then the other part, what I said, you work one with markets and you work closely with markets. So you try to support the markets as much as possible. And, and like I said, since you don't have direct control, you need to be in close contact with them. So being in contact with markets, building a plan, following up on the plan, seeing if they go in the right direction and adjusting the plans is, is a large part of, of your job. And then there are, there are the other parts is that you develop the programs. So you develop the communication campaign or you develop in, in this case, for instance, activation campaigns, or we work on sponsorship deals that we where we develop that completely. And then in, in my case, I was responsible for innovation. So then you also are responsible for the whole product development um, and, and you create the whole product so that you can hand those over to uh, to the markets as well. Okay, so, so what does a daily activity, what does a normal day look like for you then? Um, mostly because we are based in, in the US. Um, we are uh, in the morning you basically focus on uh catching up with your markets because they are in different time zones so in the morning or in late at night you you make sure that you're in contact with uh with your markets and then uh in between basically yeah you do basically project management you work on your specific projects to get them ready to present uh to the markets and then of course there's a, a third one is making sure that the brand is performing uh, as you need. So you do frequent performance review as well to understand from, Hey, are we on the right track? Where do we need to adjust? So I would say those three things are, uh, are the, the key activities that you, you have on a daily basis. That's interesting. Do you have any examples or interesting campaigns that you can share with the audience and, and some specifics maybe? Yeah, I think uh, so. So I think in the in the case of uh, of Smirnov, um, so if you look at the brand glo globally, Smirnov is a high quality vodka for a very affordable price. So the whole process has always been that we want to democratize the access to vodka, um, and and make the product available at an affordable price. That that comes at 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 a cost because price and quality perception are often linked. Um, so so that, that was one issue that the, that the brand had to overcome. And a second uh, issue that I have to overcome, and I, I mentioned that in my um, introduction, is that consumer behavior has been shifting. So consumers are much more, are changing the way they socialize. So big nights out 
are becoming less and less relevant. So big uh, nightclubs and all those kind of things, you see that they are slowly dying and you see that consumers consume in a different way. They're, they're starting to consume much more in the daytime uh, or at the end of the day or early evening so that they can still function uh, the, the next day. So, so they're really balancing, hey, I'm, now I'm off, but I wanna make sure that I still can get up tomorrow at 7 a.m. and do whatever I wanna do um, at that time. So that, that part, people are uh, really changing. And that has a impact for vodka because vodka is in a lot of countries seen as, as what we call a brand in high release so that people use when they do go out and, and drink. Um, and that, that is an impo important perception that we had to change. So what we had to change is from um, alcohol or vodka being the main character when you socialize to alcohol becoming the supporting act so to facilitate the, uh, the, the people coming together and connecting. Um, and, and that is an important shift. And then, and then you see because of the perception of vodka being uh, of uh, yeah, a release party brand that people in those new occasions do not consider vodka. While at the other hand, due to the fact that vodka is by definition odorless, tasteless and colorless, it is a great product to make all kinds of different things. But the consumer um, is not always aware. No, consumers quite quickly default to what is it? Uh, vodka and orange, vodka and coke, or even vodka and Red Bull, and that are pretty strong, uh, strong drinks. So, uh, on the first part, what we did, uh, and, and especially the co um, the college in, in communication, they created a new campaign. So Smirnov has a very interesting history. It's not your typical brand that came up and uh, was directly on a path of success. They, they, the brand had to struggle to get where it is today. So to relate to consumers and tell the story about uh, the quality, we tell that story in our campaign on how the brand basically escaped from Russia and came from the West and, and overcame there. Uh, and, and that's the whole campaign on that one. And we tap into some of the more mischievous character of the brand in that one. So you see that. And then the, the second campaign, which is very interesting to check out is we address that issue of relevance head on by, by starting to talk to consumers about when to drink it. So what kind of occasion and then what drinks to, to make and to make that very simple. We just came up with a simple drink strategy um, that, that teach consumers how you can make a light and refreshing and long drink with, with vodka. And I think, and especially the last one during, for instance, the COVID lockdown, we were able to activate it quite quickly. So people at home started to make, uh, make vodka. And, and it definitely had a big impact uh, on the vodka consumption. And, and yeah, we, we had in contrast to a lot of other brands, vodka and Smirnov has done very well during uh, during the lockdown. So when you're coming up with a campaign like that, you obviously gather data, I'm assuming. How do you gather that data to draw those conclusions? And then once you start the campaign, are you, I'm, I'm not completely understanding, are you using videos when you're telling these stories? Or what, what was the specifics of how you gathered and then applied the data? No, so so gathering information is so yeah we have a, we have a, a, a every brand team has a a, a planner or a, a, a strategic planner in in the team, 
So there is a lot of data available and we do either uh, more category generic uh, research, so see what's happening in the category, but we'll see what happens with consumer behavior. And then we do specific Smirnoff research. But what I said also, we do quite immersive research. So, so to really go to the consumer and, and spend a day uh, in a life of a consumer to see how they do. And uh, based on that, uh, what we did see, so when you do start to see that the vodka category is declining, th then you're gonna try to dive in and see what's what's happening. And so, so we did a whole study about the future of, of vodka and to understand based on what competitor was doing, uh, what uh, consumers were doing, but also the changes in, in, in the environment like channels, what that was uh, doing to, to the category. And, and based on that, you get to uh, to the insights. And then uh, the campaign wants, I think all, everything about these days is about storytelling and uh, making sure that the consumers start telling your story. So you frame your campaign like the drink strategy in a story. And in this case, th the best tools is then to do a digital. So that's either through social media where you start educating people, you have your uh, YouTube channel where you have bartenders explaining it. Uh, and then you do it either, you use all the, the assets that you have on social media, wh whether it's a simple post, whether it's uh, carousels, whether it's uh, instruction videos and especially with drinks what works very well is just simple how to's so how do you make the drink because i think that that's a very interesting that people are still intimidated by spirits so and that that means that they either don't really know what it is for or how to use it and so overcoming those barriers uh, that the consumer has is is very important so if you explain consumers very simply how to use the product and what it is for those are mostly the most effective uh stories that you can tell no and so and and the important thing for, for that is that in the drinks industry that all needs to happen against the background of um of occasions because people decide in occasions what they want to drink and, and I think that that is really crucial in the industry that you understand those occasions when they drink and then how you connect yourself in there. So it's again, connecting yourself in the moments where people are already thinking about having a drink. How big is your team currently? Um, the global brand team is uh, relatively small. Um, if I estimate it correctly, we are about 10 people. So the, those 10 people, are they the ones who create the assets like videos and YouTube stuff? Uh, do you guys also run ads, do posts, or is it more like you have this plan that you talked about in the beginning and you give this to, let's say, Mexico or the Netherlands, and then, you know, Smirnoff, the Netherlands takes it over and then runs ads and stuff like that? Yeah, we don't run anything global and also we don't put do things ourselves in-house. So, so everything that is produced, whether it's in campaign or in assets, we do that with uh, with agencies, whether that's your traditional advertising agency or a more digital agency or production agency, but we create that with that. And then, yes, then, then we provide the markets with the plan and the assets, but they activate the media plan and they do the local media buying. That's That's not something we do. You guys pretty much create the videos, the workshops, the, the cool things, and then you give those things translated to 
Mexico, for instance, and then Mexico uses those assets to do Facebook ads or whatever ads. Yeah, and they can, of course, localize it based on uh, local language. Um, and, and in a lot of cases, to make sure that things are fit for purpose, we always involve the markets in the creation. So markets are, so, so uh, especially the key markets are working with us when we create. So in key milestones, they, they are there to also yeah, make sure that we're on the right track and that we create something that is, that is useful for them. Uh, because I think the biggest issue for a global brand team is that you create a lot of assets that then uh, end up on a shelf and nobody's using them. So making sure that the local markets are really involved in the creation and, and you have buy-in from the beginning um, yeah, to, to run the assets, I think that, that's, that's absolutely critical. You know, I've never really understood how the day-to-day -day looks like, and this has been the most clearest ever anybody has explained it to me. Uh, so yeah, thank you for that. So when we um, look back, I want to go a bit more back to um, your days at Red Bull. You were a general manager there. Um, before we actually dive into Red Bull, how come you switched from general manager to to global marketing? Why why not continue at a different company as a general manager? Um, it, it's a very good question. I basically so in in the end. Um, b both options for me were on the table. So when I decided uh, to leave Red Bull and look for something else, I, I looked in both uh, options. Um, in, in this case, uh, Diageo came by as an, uh, as an opportunity. Um, and I had a long history with Diageo, so I knew the company very well from previous projects where we collaborated and I had a lot of respect for them. So they were high on my hit list. And the other thing is I'm just, yeah, marketing innovation is something that I really enjoy doing because like I said, it is, it helps you to uh, satisfy your curiosity. It helps you to uh, develop. And, and in the case of, I think what the jobs that I look out for for myself is where, where I can use my strengths. And, and my strengths is basically in positions where something needs to happen. So something is not right and the business needs a transformation or there's an opportunity to accelerate the brand. That, that is the uh, yeah the, the, the assignments that, that I really thrive at. Uh, and in this case, in the case of Smirnov, there was uh, really a brand that I think still is an absolutely great brand, but there, there is some work to be done or there, yeah, and, and we are on the right track to make that brand relevant for some more modern times. So th that was what was appealing and yeah, if you then look at the end, I could choose. But so it was Diageo, which was a company I want to work with. It was in an assignment marketing innovation, which ticked what I was looking for. And then finally, uh, moving to New York was not a punishment uh, as well. So that in the end made me uh, made me choo choose a, ro a role. Um, but it could have been something else. Yeah, I was interviewing for other roles as well at the same time, which were more more in line with general management. What's it like in New York? How long have you been there? Uh, this is my second time that we are living in New York and we are now here for six years. And yeah, I, I must say, I really like uh, living in New York. Uh, of course, right now things are different, uh, 
but the energy environments of the city uh, even we have two small kids one of three and six and you will be surprised how how wonderful it is to live in new york with small kids because we live across central park and uh yeah there's just even during the pandemic we were just able to go to the park to playgrounds uh, so and that, besides that there's just a lot to do it's a very vibrant city i personally like i said i'm very passionate about on-premise so yeah we go out at least one or two times a week either to a bar to restaurants and on top of that it's basically the capital of where uh, events happen so you can go to a lot of concerts stand-up comedy theater so yeah in that sense it's uh, a great place to live uh, right now during COVID or, or COVID of course everything changed so we had a big scare in April uh, when it really became bad but they have been after that they have had in New York a very good grasp on it and uh, yeah we, we now see definitely the light at the end of the of the tunnel um, things are slowing opening again bars and restaurants are open since the end of January for both indoor and outdoor dining so life is going slowly back, uh, although uh, it's still very quiet because uh, there's no tourists. So if you go to Times Square, it's at the moment it's completely empty, uh, and, and that has its good and bad. Yeah. How uh, New York is all over the news, especially since the whole like lockdowns and everything. How how is it like for daily life? Are you just locked up in in your in your house or apartment or is it really not that bad no it's absolutely not that bad and i would say uh in the beginning it was very strict uh so yeah offices are closed and in the beginning uh when we really had the problem um the uh bars and restaurants closed as well but you were still able uh to go out so it was not that they restricted you for, to go out so like i said i live next to central park so for us, it was still possible on a daily basis to go to Central Park and, and to go out. Um, so th that was in the beginning and th that was the most severe part of the lockdown. Since then, slowly things have opened up and uh, they have just managed it very well. And uh, contrary to other states in, in, in the US, people have very much uh, listened to the guidelines from the CDC. So if you go here on the street, everybody whether it is in close or small groups is wearing a mask um, and and that that really ha has helped and yeah and right now um everybody's getting vaccinated so yeah we basically now assume that life will go back to normal by july i have a, I have a question maybe not related to marketing but when you're in new york you have two children um I always thought New York was a bit too rough to raise children. Um, am I wrong or something? I've been a couple of times to New York and when I walk on like, you know, Broadway or whatever, it just, it seems a bit too much for children. Well, well, yeah, true and, and, and not true. The, the fact is uh, we don't live in, in Broadway. Yeah, we will visit it. But for instance, in my case, I live in the Upper West Side and that's much more a family oriented neighborhood. Um, and it is true that the, the New Yorkers and like in everybody, a big city, it's the same in Amsterdam. They are a little bit more ruder than, than something else. People, people are in a rush. Uh, 
but it is really lovely to to raise your kids here like i said um i do also think that new york has that image of being very worst and rough but i was here in 2010 for the first time and, and now this time and i feel that the city has relaxed a little bit so so that that has changed um but i also think that uh yeah if in the areas where it's more family oriented it is it's not definitely not uh, not that bad at all I can definitely recommend New York with or without kids. How come you decided to go to Manhattan and not like Brooklyn or something outside? Um, well, if, if you, well, it, for me, it was either Manhattan or, or Brooklyn. Uh, okay, if you go to New York, you want to have the New York experience and then living in Connecticut, that gives you a very different experience than, than living in Manhattan. So if you want to feel the energy of the city uh yeah then, then you need to live either in manhattan and and, and brooklyn and uh, we were open to both uh, what in the end drove the decision was basically i have two dogs and yeah then, then you're more limited in where you can live and, and who will take you and yeah we found this great apartment in uh, in the upper west uh, which has been great so far interesting so uh, back to the original story. I'm uh, super excited to know how you got into Red Bull. What were, what were the steps, the process of you switching? Why Red Bull? How did that pop up? I think Red Bull is also um, a company that a lot of people strive for. They have the Formula One teams, all the crazy YouTube channels. Um, and so, yeah, how did you get into Red Bull and then how did you get to become the general manager of Mexico? Yeah. Um, yeah, so, so I was, um, at the time that I uh, was approached for Red Bull, I was working for Heineken. And uh, so just, just one step back. So I, I went for Heineken uh, abroad to the first time to Mexico. After that period was finished, which, which finished with the acquisition of the largest brewery in Mexico, I moved to the US, my first time in New York. And I became responsible for the Heineken brand. Uh, after the acquisition, Heineken asked me to go and move back to Mexico uh, because they just want yeah, to have more people that knew Heineken, but also the new Mexico to go back. So I agreed to, to go back, but I did also request then that that would be for a limited time. Uh, so that I could, uh, that I did not become depending on, on uh, Mexico. And uh, so after two years, I was in conversations with Heineken and they had offered me a different position at the moment that I was approached by a headhunter. Uh, so I did not actively look for Red Bull myself. Um, so I was approached and I went through basically that process, which was a very interesting process because I was living in Mexico at the time, but the head office is in Fushua, Austria. So I did my interviews first online then in person in mexico and then i was flew, flown out for two days to uh Fushul to meet with the whole summer the whole board and got my interviews there and basically um on my way back so i was in the train back to munich to take the the plane uh they called me that i uh, that i had a job so that wow. yeah it's not a not something that i said oh i need to work for rebel no it was basically that they approached me the the thing that um drove me to Red Bull and, and to avoid uh, of, of leaving Heineken was 
One, I was was basically thinking, hey, I at the time I was almost 16 years in Heineken, and um, which is absolutely a great company to work for. But I thought, I don't want to have a career that says, this guy worked for Heineken all his life. Uh, if I say that I am more and um, somehow, yeah, more of an entrepreneur and taking risk, then at a certain moment you need to try different things and need to demonstrate that. I thought so. Th that was one driving force. Then the other driving force is uh, very much uh, Red Bull itself. I think it's an absolutely, uh, and I already thought that from the outside. I thought it was a great company that had a track record uh in marketing that they basically invented purposeful marketing and they invented a different way of doing marketing that a lot of that was very much ahead of its time and very much in line with how digital these days worked um so that drove me to them i just wanted to see and learn also from the from the company and and the third thing is uh it it gave me really the opportunity to run my own business um in Mexico, which uh, which I had done before for Heineken Mexico, and, and did, this this returned me to that uh, that role, and yeah, those three things uh, made me say yes, despite that it was still in Mexico, and I would spend another couple of years in Mexico. I think you worked about two years there, right? Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. So so what was it like from day one? Obviously, being a bit longer in Heineken, then suddenly switching to this new company. And you know what, what is it like entering something like Red Bull, and and what was your journey throughout Red Bull? Do you have some stories you can share? Yeah, so so the the thing that surprised me the most, which I was a little bit afraid of, is of course that after sixteen year Heineken, that you sort of have a sort of a withdrawal when you move uh, after so much years to Red Bull, and that was not the case at all. It was just like going into yeah, more or less a, a warm bot because there were so many challenges in, in Red Bull that needed to be addressed. So, so that's one. And then the whole culture in Red Bull was just very, uh, how do you say that? Very uh, inspiring. Uh, it, it is, it feels, although the company is of course established, but the, the way that for instance, the company in Mexico, but in general, the company is managed still feels like a sort of a startup and they have a, a clear enemy in mind and where, where they want to go. So, so that, that was uh, felt very natural to step in. Um, and then, yeah, it's a very young and dynamic team. So, and it's very hands-on. So where with, for instance, what I said in Diageo, you work with a lot of agencies and um, uh, third parties. In uh, Red Bull, a lot of the things are done internally. So uh, we had a, huge event which is called uh, Red Bull X Fighters which happened every year and was part of a world series of eight X Fighters some are uh, stunt uh, motorcycle uh, events and we held that in the uh, Bull Arena in Mexico City where normally you have a lot of production people around it this this was done by the team and you really hands-on and people were operating the bars and uh, so it was not just supervising but you, you really and that really gave a lot of a lot of energy uh, the other thing that happened when I joined Red Bull, that was around the time that um, they won the Formula One four times in a row. Uh, and uh, Felix Baumgartner jumped from, uh, from outer space almost. Uh, and those two things gave just an enormous boss uh, to the organization. Uh, so, so yeah, there was just a lot of energy there. Uh, and just also 
um, finding out how the company really worked was really interesting. So I have a lot of respect for uh, for GetBull. Uh, first of all, because they have this sort of startup mentality, they feel a little bit like a rebel. But if you're inside, their marketing is very structured. Um, it's very centrally driven from uh, from Austria, and they control control their brand very well. Um, and, and they do a really good job. And that's not what you expect from a company that that has that rebel in, image, but their brand is really really managed very well. Um, they are also world class in in a couple of other areas that you don't expect. But they are probably the best brand in the world in operating in the on trade um, and how they manage that and in the on trade so bars restaurants and uh and, and clubs so yeah so in th that sense they are uh far advanced from uh, advanced from a lot of other companies so that was interesting to see and then on trade marketing um th they are very very good at trade marketing as well because red bull is an impulse product so they need to make sure that they control the point of sale very well um and, and then there was the last part in in uh, in Red Bull is that they started to diversify and that was not the standard way into other drinks but they opened Red Bull Media House which was a, a very exciting uh, journey as well uh, so that's that's super fascinating what you're telling I am excited also so you're joining Red Bull after the the kick of you know, uh, Felix uh, jumping out of that uh, balloon and, and Formula One champions. Unfortunately, Mercedes is winning nowadays. I'm really rooting for Max Verstappen out there. Um, okay. But uh, what was it? What, what, what were your daily activities at Red Bull? Like, is there something special that stood out? You also mentioned, uh, obviously, the brand was very well controlled. Even though it was this rebel, there was a lot of structure as well. Can you share how they did it, what you learned from it, also kind of like how you applied it after you left Red Bull? Because that seems like something that a lot of companies are trying to do, but it's not really working. And I think kind of the only company I know that, that pulls off those type of things usually come from Silicon Valley, like Tesla or SpaceX or something like that. Um, so yeah, could you maybe elaborate a little bit more about, you know, how Red Bull does that balance? Yeah, so, so, they, they, uh, so they, they have a very strong marketing in Austria and, and they provide you with the programs that you need. So Red Bull as a company has a very simple marketing strategy and, and a marketing model that they have created, which is all about, in the end, winning the hearts of the consumer through word of mouth. So, so that, that is really one part. And they have basically identified four areas where they focus on when it comes to marketing. Uh, they, they have their normal comms and you have seen their, their campaigns. Uh, th that is just a part of it. And that is just to support the general awareness. The other elements are much more important for them. So one is called what they call consumer collect. Um, and with consumer collect, they basically make sure that consumers are drinking Red Bull in the right occasions. Um, and, and so you have the Wings team that are handing out drinks and they use uh, student brand ambassadors to build the brand in, in students. So you have that. And then they work with opinion leaders and that mostly they're athletes and musicians. And I think that is a, for me the very interesting because that's where 
they really bring their purpose to life to help people to give them the energy to purchase their dreams so what red bull does different than a lot of other brands is um they don't just sponsor athletes but they work with the athletes so, so they basically on the uh, yeah they they sit down you sit down once a year with them and you said hey what is it what you want to achieve and how can we help you with that so so and, and they do that in a much more broader way so red bull is always uh, associated with extreme sport and and of course they do that and they have a very strong foothold in that but they also much more mainstream and they're also much more in arts and music um, uh, as well so that, that is that is a, a, a part um, and and then then they do advance uh, and advance events sorry events um, they've just don't they create their own events and then they focus on a specific group and then they try to amplify that by uh basically by storytelling so it could be that there is an event like a, a, a <clears throat> breakdance contest which of course has a very uh, specific target when people that are arrive at but then they amplify it and they tell stories about it and in that sense, they have created a lifestyle brand that basically has created so much content that now they have been able to set up uh, Red Bull Media House where they leveraging that content uh, to directly communicate and even sell to other TV stations or broadcasters to, to uh, do that more. So I think that's one part of their, their model and it's the pure marketing part. Then, then what I said is the on-premise part where they really try to create experiences for people in the on-premise and, and they are, if you will notice that more and more bars will not allow any visibility, but the only visibility that you will see is from Red Bull. And, and that's because Red Bull has built that relationship with the outlets and they add value uh, to, the, uh, to the outlets. Uh, and, and the third part is what I said is, is the trade marketing. So they are very advanced in identifying how to grow the brand in the point of sale so i think those are the three things on marketing that are absolutely crucial for uh, for Red Bull. do you what are some cool stories you can share from the time of red bull that maybe young entrepreneurs or entrepreneurs that are scaling really fast can take away from your experience you have like a cool story to share that that contributes to that story to, to the, that audience? <clears throat> a cool story. Um, well, well, I think one of the things that, what I thought was a cool story, and it's more, more on the commercial sales side, is that we had a huge client in Mexico, which was called OXO, which is a convenient chain. And um, <clears throat> they were crucial for us to crack and, and, and enter into that. And the way we were working with them was not, not really working. It was a very transactional. So what we tried to do with them was to create much more of a collaboration and see how we can, can work together that really benefited them. Um, and that was at the moment that we were trying to create the energy drink category in Mexico. So we basically leveraged the fact that we were next to the US. So we took the team of, um, of OXO to the US, to the US team, and we let the team in the US explain how they exploded the category over there and how convenience stores played a big role in that and what you needed to do for that. And then in the end, 
that uh, the convenience stores would really benefit them. So we were able to demonstrate to OXO, um, they, they have a mission where they wanna double revenues every five years. And we were basically able to demonstrate them in that session with, with the US team that they could double their revenues just by growing Red Bull and, and, the, uh, and the category. So leveraging uh, the other tools and the contacts that you have and really looking at some joint business planning and looking at what your customer need, that, that, that really helped. Um, the, the other stories that, that I find very fascinating is just uh, how they manage their, their events. So um, like I said, in the, uh, when we started talking about Red Bull, the fact that they do a lot of things hands-on, they create their own events, and they, they basically try to stay away from traditional ways of doing things like just sponsoring an event and put your logo on the poster and then hoping that, that it will come right right if red bull steps into an event there is a they really create a red bull experience and they are able to amplify that through storytelling and i think those things from being hands-on doing your own events or at least controlling your brand in the events and then amplifying that 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 i found very interesting in uh, in red bull when I when I'm hearing your stories, um, it sounds like your time at Red Bull, you were like this general manager, but it sounds to me like you're almost like selling the company. Is that what you're then doing as a general manager? You're like selling to to other big companies. Uh, no. So in 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 this case, uh, as the general manager, um, you you're basically responsible for for the P and L and uh making sure that the business reaches its targets uh and and makes and makes money and accelerating growth uh the fact that i had i had a and, and that that's a significance of why red bull's very hands-on we had a marketing team at a very experienced marketing leader that that had 60 people and that was and that was uh very much also uh supported by austria so that was the part of the business that was working very well where we needed to make sure is that uh, and where my attention went is that also in the commercial area which is uh, much more left to the local business that that was in order so how do you yeah how do you accelerate the growth of your, of your brand and how do you make sure that your brand is in what coca-cola calls in in arm reach of when they need one so for me a large part was <clears throat> how do i get the product in the hand of the consumer and what do i need to do to, to make that uh, make that happen so yeah managing the PL and then making sure that the commercial part was running were two of my key uh key activities so there i was i had i was not directly responsible for sales but i did oversee the sales and and work closely with with the people because that's where yeah we really could make a difference and we had to make a difference i always wonder um what is it like to just switch uh, from kind of functions. Obviously you were doing a lot of marketing stuff and then you do the, these like general management type of stuff. Is it really that different or is it quite similar? Just some adjustment period? Do you need an extra education or something? What's the difference? Um, well, there's a big difference between marketing and I experienced that 
myself firsthand when I moved for Heineken to Mexico, because when I left the Netherlands, I was a marketeer. When I entered Mexico, um, I became the general manager for, for Mexico and I had to set up the business because Heineken didn't have any business in Mexico. So I had to set it up. That was a quite steep learning curve because from marketing, I had one to switch my attention and I need to really fully understand uh, finance, sales, HR, the legal part and the whole logistic and distribution. So the whole supply. So, so that, that is definitely the, the broadening of your scope is definitely uh, a part. Um, and your people management skills are becoming much more important because you have to yeah, uh, inspire the, the whole team to go into the direction that you want the organization to go. So you have a broader scope. Um, I don't think you need a specific uh, education because a lot, a lot of the things do remain the same. So it's a lot of things that is just making sure that you focus on the business results and that you know where you want to get the company and that you get there and that you basically solve the issues that that help happen on the way. So I don't think it's different, uh, but, but yeah, you need to get the broader scope and yeah, you also need to sometimes make more difficult decisions. So like in Red Bull, if we didn't make our results, yeah, that means that you need to go back to marketing and said, hey, we need to cut budgets uh, to stay within our financial uh, targets. So, so th yeah, that, that will be for me the difference. Uh, that's actually really uh, funny that you uh, say that. So don't you feel like when somebody like a general manager goes to their marketing manager and says, hey, you need to cut the budget, isn't isn't that like what's going to make the budget next year even smaller? Um, no, not always. Um, so, so yeah, so, so, uh, so some marketing activities are, of course, more focused on, on the long term and creating awareness and have a less direct impact on, on it. But on the other hand, you have a financial obligation and you need to make your targets. Uh, and you cannot spend money that you don't have. Um, so in that sense, you need to need to balance that. And then you need to say, hey, I have due to less sales, whatever, I have less budget. And yeah, then you need to reallocate that and you need to say, okay, what is the issue that I need to serve for first? And I think that a lot of startups will recognize that because I think startups are mostly starved for cash and then you just need to find different ways to, to uh, and, uh, yeah, to impact your market and, and, and make choices of what, what is at that moment the most important thing. Um, if you long term cut your marketing versus yes, then you're going to undermine your brand building. Uh, that's absolutely true. Yeah, it makes sense. Um... I wanted to kind of look uh, more to the future. Obviously, we talked a couple of months ago. Uh, it's been that long already. How uh, How's your future looking like? I've heard you're probably moving to the Netherlands. Is that still happening? That, that's still the intent. So um, uh, despite that, what the, my, my love story with, uh, with New York, as a family, we have decided that uh, in the end, uh, we prefer our kids to grow up in the Netherlands. And that has to do mostly with uh, with the educational system. Um, it is just better and more accessible in the Netherlands. It's uh, yeah, it, it feels like in the U.S. 
Uh, and even if you go to public schools, that that is uh, yeah, not on the same standards. It's very much standard test focus. So we have decided, okay, we want to go back. Uh, that gives us, so our decision is driven by school year. So that gives us basically from now and uh, three years to go back to the Netherlands. And uh, the first milestone will come up in May. And in May, we will take a decision if we will move to back to the Netherlands in July or we go on in New York for one more school year. So that is uh, that is where, where I am right now. And, and that depends on, um, so I have been come to the conclusion that I basically halfway my career and I had a great time uh, in Heineken, Red Bull and, and the Aja. I have learned a lot and I have been able to travel the world and, and see a lot and, and did some really amazing projects uh, that, I, that I could not imagine when I, when I started that journey. However, looking to the future uh, and also evaluating my last year, uh, I felt that I'm a little bit too far away from the business. So I'm now basically exploring opportunities to uh, start my own business. Um, yeah, and I'm, I'm looking into that, uh, but those initiatives are mostly focused on the Netherlands. Why, uh, why not another job and why not a business? Actually, you starting another business was gonna be a question, why not do that? But, but why a business, why not another job? Um, well, well, like I said, I I, um, I like to find my own path. I, I like my my independency, and I like to look for the borders from where what's possible. And uh, however you look at it, um, in larger companies, there's a lot of some internal politics and communications that it goes on. And especially in global roles, you're pretty far away from where the business is. Um, and and then if you yeah if you really want to make an impact uh, in society. And also that plays a role for me for how can you contribute something positive uh, to the planet? Yeah, those two things basically drive me. Hey, I don't just want another job. I want some more independence and I want to create something uh, that I can look back to. Hey, I've created that. So not only from, hey, I've worked on that brand, I've created that campaign. No, I have created this new product, new business or whatever. And uh, yeah, so that, that gives me that makes me very excited uh, to get out of bed and figure out what what it's going to be and what it's going to look like. So so what kind of business would you be starting if uh, you're starting one? Um, good question. Um, <clears throat> I have narrowed it down very, very specifically. So I do think uh, even if even if I'm looking at a career switch uh, at the moment, um, I do uh, like to stay close to what I know and what I can, so leverage on that. So I would stick to some of the food, beverage and leisure industry to uh, stay in the, that area. And at the moment I am, uh, without giving too much away, uh, I'm, I have four active projects where I work with partners to look at, hey, uh, is that something? So uh, one is a little bit closer to home is basically really leveraging what I've done uh, by setting up. Uh, I want to reinvent some the, yeah, the agency structure and making that more accessible for some of our um, small and uh, medium sized companies where I, I do believe right now 
that a lot of times those kind of companies don't have access because the costs are too high but, but there is a model possible to really reduce that and, and really offer differentiated services to that, those kind of companies and in that direction uh, I'm already doing a couple of projects to test out how that works so yeah mostly according to the minimum viable product is just seeing if this works and if companies are willing to pay for it um, there, there's another project that I look at is uh, there's a lot of things changing in uh, in food and beverages and there's a lot a lot of nice uh, companies coming up and so together with an investor I'm looking at can we set up a uh, private equity fund for the food and uh, beverage sector in the Netherlands so that, that's a project that uh, that I look at uh, I'm actually looking at the same time at starting a beverage company so how would that look like um, on uh, on that one and then yeah, my personal pet project is like I said at the beginning I have worked for a long time in the on-premise like in bars and restaurants that is still something that I uh, crave and I hope one day to own my uh, my own to my restaurant bar so so that, those are the four territories that I am uh, investigating nice how long do you think it'll take you to to investigate and anything we can do to help um yeah th that's a good question uh the, the nice thing of the four projects is that they interlink so they can reinforce one each other uh i should have the the agency model up and running by uh the beginning of july so then i have done enough projects to validate if it works and, and start it up um and then from the other one it is picking the most the most promising one seeing which one has the most potential to move forward uh, but that should be up and running before the end. One of them should be up and running before the end of the year. If you're starting an agency, like from your experience on, how do you start something like this? Theoretically, obviously not the, the projects you're working on, but let's say like this is it tomorrow, the agency is getting incorporated. How are you doing it differently than somebody who's just out of college and starting their agency? Well, it's more looking at the um, the, um, the traditional agency model and, and seeing how their value proposition works. So um, I am I uh, recently starting to follow this online MBA. I'm not sure if you heard about it. It's called the Power MBA. Uh, it's it's a startup, and I was not so much interested in 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 this initially. I was not so much interested in some of the material because most of that I thought I would know anyway but they have reinvented the uh, educational system so on how you do a MBA and it, basically the MBA is done fully online and the way they, they teach you is with micro lessons of 15 minutes um, and it is very much focused on startups and how do you disrupt businesses I would de definitely recommend anybody to uh, to take a look at that. Um, it, it helped me at, le at least a lot on uh, on identifying how I could start it. And, and one of the tools that came back there um, uh, was the Blue Ocean strategy. And so what I'm doing for this agency is really looking at, okay, what do agencies invest in and where do I want to be different? And I think one of the things where agency spend a lot of money in is building big agencies with a lot backbone which causes a um, <clears throat> a huge overhead so if you approach them their fee will already be 
uh, very, very much higher. And if you set up your, your agency much more as an open sourcing virtual network and you bring people in, and, and you have that ready, so you bring people only in in the moment that you really use them, you can strip out the whole back office um, and you can also strip out um, the, the, the very high fees that normally people would uh, charge as an uh, uh, yeah, as a, as a consultant or however. So th that's one of the things that I look at. And for instance, uh, for me, very eye-opening. I'm, I'm working on a project right now um, on a beverage, launching a beverage in the, the Netherlands. And we had to do a redesign of the pack. And I just compared how that would work in Diageo and how that would work under this new network structure. So in Diageo, you would have briefed your design agency and they probably would have come back with a price tag of, of 40 to $50,000. Now we went the other way and we, we we basically went the more freelance way and if we find a freelancer that we paid on a daily rate and in, in the end we probably end up paying something closer to three thousand dollars so the, the, you see the big difference in in there and that, that is i think where where the agency can really add value uh with, without giving uh anything away i think it's uh so funny you say that and um I think it was 2019 or something. I came across a, a book um, by um, the president of Pixar, Ed Catmull. I don't know if you know the book, uh, Creativity Inc. Have you no. heard about it? No, I will make a note of that. Yeah, I can highly recommend it. It's, it's like my new Bible. I, I read it, I think I read it three times already. But uh, I remember reading it and we were at the time like 28 people huge overhead um you know for the small agency um like everything that we could do wrong we were doing wrong um and i remember reading the book and there was this phase in pixar where they started to grow and at one point um ed cadmo pretty much does what you say where he just strips all the overhead away keeps all the essential employees and gives them a, a type of contract where they know they'll stick around as long as they want to, but they can leave at any point. So, so it becomes a highly effective culture type of company. Um, and I remember just having this revelation and, and I was actually on my genie trip, which is my mentor used to call it uh, like a trip where you go and you rest. And then if you could uh, wish any wish from a genie, what would that wish be? So, so then for a week, you just go and chill and you just have a notebook with you and you come up with those uh, wishes. And I remember coming back completely in the next three weeks, restructuring the whole company, making sure pretty much everything you just mentioned, uh, so that also costs for clients would go down, uh, the speed would go up, um, no politics, all that stuff. Uh, and then obviously our growth could be facilitated in a healthy way. Um, and I remember, I think two or three months later, we won our first award. And then a couple of months later, another award. And I was like, whoa, this thing really works. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, I can highly recommend that uh, model. Yeah, I will definitely read the book. So it sounds very interesting. Um, my um, my interest in that came a little bit well a while ago. So there's this um, pretty uh, well known but also uh, 
he's been around for a long time, Gary Hamill, who's one of some of the, the strategists, business strategists that I've been following throughout my career. And he wrote already, and I think it's 15 years ago, he says there is innovation everywhere except for in management and how we manage our companies that has been the same for the last 150 years. And, um, and I think there, there with the modern technology, but now also with, uh, with COVID, I think a lot of companies <clears throat> in whatever industry you are, are basically being forced to rethink how they structure the business. Um, and I saw that in my, uh, uh, at the end at Diageo as well, during COVID, they, they quite quickly started to adapt and, and doing things differently because they were forced by uh, by COVID. And I think that that will be something that we will see moving forward once we get out of the pandemic, that, that companies need to reinvent themselves or in some cases, uh, full industries. Um, if you look at uh, the on-premise, so bars, restaurants in the Netherlands, they are extremely hard hit by by the pandemic and the lockdown in the Netherlands. Um, my expectation is that quite a number of them, once we come out, will not survive. And the ones that do survive will have to rethink their business model and see how they can create more robust business models and find new ways of generating revenue. Uh, because doing business as it was and hoping that everything goes back as it was, I think that that is a very dangerous uh, path to follow. Yeah, I agree. Uh, I have to add, uh, so when we did it in 2019, uh, we were, you know, pretty small company considering, uh, and it still took us like six months um, to, to fully transition to this new model where everybody was comfortable going digital was a big thing there. When COVID hits, we were, I think January, we were finalizing the last steps of that restructuring and then COVID hit around March. And I just remember thinking like how crazy uh, coincidence the timing was. Uh, but what I wanted to add to that is when you start that restructure, there's a lot of hype, of course, but uh, specifically with a creative agency, which is, you know, we're doing a lot of videos so that's highly uh, impacted on storytelling, creativity, um, being close, being able to brainstorm that type of thing. Uh, having whiteboards <laughs> is a big thing for us. And so I did notice that there is some issues, um, especially uh, when you do like dailies, which is where we check every day how the quality is of the video, uh, where we brainstorm, that type of thing. Those things do get affected when you go too much to the, to the um, you know, no. the other side, um, I would say the the non Red Bull side where Red Bull has everything internally. And then uh, so we so we kept our core very internal. Um, the creative core is, is quite you know similar, not much change. And that's what Pixar did. So we, we modeled Pixar there. Um, but we did start opening up to people uh, who were either past workers or people that we trusted. Uh, and we tried to incorporate them uh, part time for some strengths. So, so yeah, there's like, you still have to find a balance. Uh, and I think, you know, there's, there's innovation in there, but at the same time, there's a lot of good things that is happening as well. And I think it, it kind of, we had a, we had a podcast guest who wrote a book about Jeff Bezo, uh, Bezos and, uh, and the thing that popped up there was, 
um, the thing that popped up there was that you know you have Amazon which is this online store but you also have them opening now these physical stores so there's this intersection where you know no I, I absolutely agree with you and I think both, both examples are, are great examples that it's not um, yeah, all going one way digital. Um, I must say there, there are certain things uh, when it comes to daily work that there are still um, more difficult on, on, on uh, somehow if you do everything digital and online. So for instance, uh, yeah, more creative sessions where you create projects and, and you would sit on the whiteboard and somebody can stand up and walk and place things on it. Uh, judging uh creative is very very much difficult online because normally you, you just want to see everything against the wall and move it around and yeah on your screen that is much less possible uh and personally i also must say that at a certain moment you get a sort of online fatigue and then your energy level uh go drains much quicker so you have to find that balance between online which i think people will be more productive but also you need to have the brick and mortar and that is as an agency, but also as a company. And I thought that, yeah, in that sense, it was very interesting to see uh, that uh, Amazon bought Whole Foods um, uh, in, in that direction and how well they have integrated it in the US uh, almost seamlessly into their digital and their uh, offline world. Yeah, I agree. Um, I wanted to ask, because we kind of glossed over it, but it's a, it's a big deal for me because I'm very passionate about education. Um, you said that you, decide, you decided, obviously, with your family to move back to the Netherlands. How is the education in America compared to the Netherlands? What is it that they're not teaching, you think, that the Netherlands is teaching? Yeah, there, there, there are positive and negative on, on both sides. Um, so in the, in the US, you either have the, the public system uh, or the or the private system, although the private system is, is, is very expensive, uh, you do get better better teachers in, in the private system, but there is not so much difference in, in my opinion in, in the approach. And the approach is still um, very much focused on standard testing and, and getting knowledge in. And I find the 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 focus on and in this day and age where we go more and more digital, it's my absolute belief that some of freedom, creativity, and independent thinking are extremely important to, to build in that as well. It's not, not all about knowledge because knowledge is at a certain moment that will just come available for everybody. So it's then your creativity and how you use all the tools and knowledge which really makes you stand apart. And I think there they're very much behind. And in a lot of cases in the US, the public schools are just not really great. Uh, so so, the, so the, I think that, that's one part. And, and the other part I would say, um, and, and this is me, but, but uh, remember I've been gone from the Netherlands so for 18 years, so may, maybe I created a utopia. Um, but I do believe that in the Netherlands, kids are being raised much more independent and uh, with, with a lot more freedom than, than here. Quite early, you can go as a kid alone on the street. Here, a kid always needs to have supervision. You can just simply not. It's just not uh, allowed by law. Or even a kid of 12 cannot wander alone on the street. 
So there needs to be supervision. Is that by law not allowed? Yeah, yeah, you can get in a lot of problems if your kid is just wandering around until uh, the fact that they charge you with neglect and that you're not taking well care of your kid. Um, so that, that is really just because somebody's playing on the street. Well, not playing on the street, if, but, but there needs to be supervision. And if there is an idea that somebody is just wandering around, yeah, then then th that can cause for for definitely can cause for issues in, in this country. There's a lot of uh, control on, on that one. Um, it's, of course, also a, a very big city. So you have to be careful with that. Really be careful with that. And as a consequence, there is a lot less freedom. Um, yeah, so, so just as a crazy example, I was on a Zoom with somebody not that long ago, uh, with somebody in the Netherlands, and um, she, she basically said to her son, which was seven or eight, hey, can you run to the supermarket and buy me a, a pack of milk? Well, that is something you do not have to do in the US. So, so uh, sending a six, seven year, eight year old out to buy a pack of milk on their own, that's absolutely not done. Uh, and that, yeah, so, so, so that, that is a really big difference. And, and there's another thing that for me is, is a big difference. And um, if, if I look at myself growing up in the Netherlands, one of the things that I really enjoyed is that you had the opportunity to be part of different groups. So yeah, you went to your school, but then you had either your football club or your music club, or you did tennis, or in my case, uh, you, did, you did judo or karate. But that was a community and you had different social groups and that, that made you very diverse because you met all these different people here and especially in new york that is a lot less the case so most of the things go through school and so they basically focus on that same bubble of school and that whole idea of some of that yeah, that club structure that that does not exist at least not in 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 the us and that is a second point that for me i think as a not only social uh, skills but also physical skills they yeah they they lag behind quite quickly it is here okay you go for something and it needs to be professional and in the netherlands you can play tennis because you just like to play tennis and you don't need to have aspire a professional career in that so and yeah those things really make us think okay we want to go back to the netherlands uh, <clears throat> and the last thing in that line is uh, also we don't want to uh yeah end up our kids when they come out of college with it what is it two three hundred thousand dollar debt so that's another uh, b benefit of another yeah that's uh that's true although there are some negotiations that they want to raise it and people weren't happy when that it was raised but uh yeah, yeah you're saying so many things that i'm looking at my childhood and taking for granted and i just i wasn't aware it was so different in america yeah, and I'm not sure if that's the same every in, 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 in the US, no. So, but as, at least in New York, it, it's more difficult. And also in New York, of course, the costs are much higher. So, well, I don't know if you go in, in the Netherlands and you join a tennis club. No, I think you play 300 euro a year for the membership. Um, here, uh, if you take a lesson, it's, what is it? Between 75 and $100 for 45 minutes. So. So, so that is, that also puts a, a lot of constraints. That's crazy. Uh, yeah. Okay, yeah, that's uh, fascinating. Had no idea. Obviously, that is New York. Uh, New York is a little bit yeah. different than the rest. But uh, but it is obviously for for us Europeans when we're going to the U.S. We're usually going to 
either a New York or a Los Angeles, San Francisco. So I'm assuming that when you go to those big cities, it might be quite similar, actually. So, so yeah, thanks for sharing. I had no idea. Um, we're slowly rounding up and I have a couple of questions that I tend to always uh, ask uh, uh, when the opportunity presents itself. The first one is uh, something called the crash and burn segment, which is about your biggest failures. So my question to you is, what are some of the biggest failures you didn't expect and what did you learn from it? If you look at your entire career from Heineken to you know, Red Bull, and now uh, and also what you're thinking of future but maybe also from your studies biggest failures oh that's a good one uh, I, I, I think one is when I went for the first time for instance for Heineken to Mexico um, I think I went there a little bit uh, too much opportunistic and naive I think uh, so I think oh I'm gonna go to Mexico I'm gonna conquer the world and uh, the reality was something else I think the two things that I learned from that was that once I got to the market I noticed that um, it was very it was gonna be very difficult to grow the business in, in, in Mexico for Heineken because the whole market was basically closed off by exclusivity. So all the local brands had exclusivities with a uh, distribution channel. So a lot of the time you were just not able to, to get in there. And, and breaking in there and negotiating that, um, yeah, I, w I was a little bit naive. I went in there and I thought, oh, we are Heineken. Uh, that will open doors for us. And, uh, and yeah, that, that, that definitely didn't turn out to be the case. And, and I think the other thing is that when I moved, everybody told me, hey, be very careful because you're going to a new culture, people treat you different, etc." And even though I was warned very clearly about that, I think what, 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 what I found out is that in the beginning you think, hey, it's not all so different. And then in, in those beginning, you take things for granted and you think that things work the same. And then you basically make a lot of mistakes that later you found out, hey, this is something that they would have handled very differently. Uh, so really understanding the culture and, and really being uh, open to that and, and not, not too quickly accept that things are, are the same. It's not that not that different. I think that those were, were two things. Um, the, the other thing was... Um, <clears throat> Well, what I learned and, and where I learned a lot from is that in big companies, I have bumped my nose quite a bit uh, when you want to really drive chains because there are just a lot of forces that do not want the chains. Uh, there's a lot of forces that have a vested interest in the status quo. And um, yeah, and, and then sometimes with your Dutch directness and uh, lack of tact, at least in my case, um, you simply uh, get not accomplished the stage that you wanted because basically in, in the process you have more or less offended the people that uh, you had a vested interest in that. So yeah, learning on how to deal with that and, and how to create change, especially in big companies, I think, uh, yeah, and, and that, that uh, requires patience and, 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 and more time. Yeah, I think those are two things where I really bond my uh, by my nose in. And yeah, what, what it made me is 
much more resilient so i yeah if, if something goes wrong it doesn't really bother me i'm pretty easy to pivot and uh and try new things uh so so that that's the, the biggest thing that i learned from it and i think I'm, uh, when i start my own business that that will really be something that i can fall back on so the, the resilience of just just to move forward take a blow back and, and move forward i think that's uh yeah, that, that for me has been a, a very valuable lesson along the way. I think uh, what's also, when you say that, what comes to mind is obviously you run marathons. So I always got the advice, running a business is like running a marathon, not a sprint. And uh, I think the fact that, yeah. you know, somebody who actually runs marathons understands that concept much better than somebody who hypothetically ran a marathon. Because uh, when, you, when you really run it, you start realizing that it's almost never ending uh, and you just need to at one point you just start yeah. doing one step at a time uh, for yeah. me that's usually like at 10k there's still 30k left and then it's just one step at a time and then uh, eventually you do finish uh, but uh, but I think that will help when you start uh, so, so that's very good um, yeah that's a, that's an interesting uh, comparison uh, to be very honest i never looked at it like that way uh but but you're absolutely right when when you run a marathon it is you, you need to get into a rhythm and you need not think too much about oh i still need to go 40 kilometers or something no so you get into a rhythm and then you you follow that i find that difficult more difficult in a business to do the same because you, you want to uh you want you really want to move forward so, so for me, that, that that is something, and maybe the marathon uh, example is something I need to keep in mind because, yeah, I, I, I tend to be a little bit impatient when it comes to making change. Yeah, I think one of the um, best advices I got for that was also like be aware that you just need to get over certain humps before success really yeah. starts coming, unless you're one of those exceptions that have hyper growth. But like uh, the usual hump is three years and five years. Uh, a lot of businesses yeah. go bankrupt in the three-year mark, the five-year mark. If you make the 10-year mark, you're almost, like you're for sure gonna survive almost, I would say. Uh, no guarantees, because it's business, but uh, that really helped me when I was doing my business, because it was this, I had no patience, but then it was like, okay, chill. Like, I still have a lot of years to go until it's 10 years. Uh, and now we're actually getting closer to seven, eight years. And, and it's just you're it's just such a difference. Clients are coming to us compared to in the first couple of years. It was just fighting, getting through doors, all these things. Um, partially why I started to start a funding event as well. It's just to open doors for other people. Um, but yeah, uh, I had I had a last question that I always ask as well related to obviously impact talks. Uh, so it's regarding projects that you've worked on that, that had impact. So, so the question then is, if you look again at everything in your career, what is the project that you worked on that had the biggest impact? The biggest impact. Um, well, I, I think in, in the end, uh, if I look at the, the really big impact, uh, that, that was basically my move to Mexico. And, and so I was sent to Mexico, basically to start up a business and, and look how we could enter that market. Uh, th that 
search in the end ended up in the acquisition of uh, Cortemoc Moctezuma, which is the second largest brewery in uh, in Mexico, and uh, which now is basically the largest semi-separated operating uh, company in um, in the Heineken Group. So I would say that on a business scale, that is um, definitely up there with with where there was the biggest uh, the biggest impact. Um, on a personal level, uh, what what has had the biggest level, and that was basically the decision to move away uh, from the Netherlands and then to to stay away from a longer period. That has changed my life, uh, yeah, completely. And my life would have been completely different if I would have stayed in in the Netherlands and I would have had very different experiences. So that that is the second more personal thing that really changed and. Uh, I think more and more, I'm not sure that uh, people are still open to do that, but yeah, I would recommend anybody that has the opportunity to go abroad for a couple of years. It's just such an enriching and life-changing uh, experience that I would absolutely uh, recommend anybody to, to take that opportunity. What is uh, something that you're currently doing not related to business, marketing, anything, just something random? Um, that you're learning or doing that might be interesting? Something I'm learning, doing that might be interesting. Um, cooking. Um, so, which of course has a little bit of a link to Entree, but I enjoy cooking and I am exploring um, how to really cook Mexican. So, trying an understanding of the Mexican culture and, and, uh, and it, uh, I, I I have worked in kitchens, but it's extremely hard. So I'm enjoying that, uh, but it's a, it's a, yeah, it's not an easy one. How do you learn? Do you follow like a workshop online or something? Um, yeah, mostly I just buy a cooking book or I look up YouTube on a, on a recipe, and and I just try it by myself. And then I, I like the whole process around that because you, the process of basically picking your recipe and then figuring out where and how you're gonna the ingredients and uh, etc so there's a whole whole the whole journey there is, is something and um, recently I became a member of something that is called masterclass uh, which is basic uh, so, so and and there, there's a couple of, of the of uh, chefs on there as well that that explain uh, uh, the techniques and, and things as well. So follow that. And I look at some other uh, other development there as well. Nice. That's uh, yeah. Cooking is definitely interesting because if you have that entrepreneurial mindset, then cooking can get quite competitive if you want to. Uh, oh, I'm absolutely. Yeah. The, every every step needs to be more complex. Uh, yeah. Oh, and 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 then I think another thing for me that I try to go back to I, I used to do that and I picked that up in Mexico which was much more a sort of balanced lifestyle with Ayurveda at the center and, and meditating and 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 reading reading more on spirituality and and awareness um, and that's something that that I personally would like really to yeah also give to my children so so that's uh, something I uh, I picked up as well. Have you checked out uh, any Vipassana retreats? Uh, do you know what that is? I do know what it is. No, and I've not been, uh, I've been only to one retreat, but that's quite a long while and it was in Mexico. Yeah. 
uh, Vip you should check it out vipassana are these 10 day silent retreats the, that that's kind of what they do and you eat like once a, a day and then you just it's just silent the whole day i haven't done it myself but uh, i've had a couple of friends and my girlfriend did it uh, and it was life-changing they said so if you're ever in that position where you have 10 days uh you can do that <laughs> yeah well i, I can imagine that that is life-changing now because there's well i assume that you also are disconnected from everything that's digital uh and yeah doing that will be yeah will will have a big impact uh just being silent eating once a time and being by yourself for 10 days how many people are even alone by themselves without any connection for one day that uh yeah so i can imagine that that's a a huge personal experience i uh absolutely loved our conversation it's uh already an hour and 40 minutes or something like that uh i uh yeah i loved it um i would like to roll out the red carpet for you please promote anything that is coming up is there anything uh yeah interesting for the viewers to check out as well uh no i think i think at the, the moment uh not yet um so most of my projects are really early uh, the only thing um that i then if i have a second to promote something um so at the moment i am supporting a, a young startup in in the netherlands uh, so two young guys uh 24 and 27 i think they are and they started their own business straight out of uh, university and uh, they are trying to launch what is their uh, what what we call is a hard seltzer which is a category in the US that is on, on fire, which basically in the last five years grabbed 10% of the beer market. And basically what it is, it is a sparkling water with 5% alcohol and a slight flavor. And it's basically positioned as an alternative to beer, a more SMR, say have a more healthy, refreshing, less filling version of beer. And they have launched a brand called uh, Gold Gig. Um, they are going up against uh, big comp competitors like Heineken, uh, like uh, ABI, uh, like Bavaria and Gols, uh, like Coca-Cola. Uh, but I think they have a very imp uh, uh, interesting proposition. Uh, so yeah, if I can convince anybody through this podcast to pick up a can of Gig and, and, and give it a try, that would be, uh, be very well appreciated. Well, how do you spell them? A uh, gig, uh, G, uh, G I G. So yeah. G I G. Is that G I G dot NL then or something like that? No, if you want to Google it is, uh, you, you go to the website, which is drink gig print NL print, uh, dot com. Sorry. Dot com. Cool. Uh, yeah, any last words you have for the listeners? No, I would really like to thank you for the invite to be uh, be part of uh, of your uh, webcast. I really enjoyed it. And uh, yeah, I, I'm really uh, looking forward. So I'm in the US, but I'm trying to rebuild my network in the Netherlands. So yeah, I'm trying to reconnect with people, see what's going on, what kind of startups, especially in the food and, and the beverage. So. Yeah, anybody that listens and, and hears that and has an interest, please feel free to uh, to reach out. And I would love to have a conversation on uh, on what's happening in that front in the, in the Netherlands. 
If you like this episode, you can check out our most recent one here. And if you haven't already, make sure you click here to subscribe and see the next one. But if you're interested in more tips and tricks, then make sure to join our Facebook group where you can find thousands of like-minded people and you get direct access and support to any business question from the entire startup funding event team.